Let's turn, please, to Ephesians 1. For the next few weeks, we are going to be going through what is really the pulsating heart of the letter in regard to what Paul wanted to communicate to the Ephesians, or to put it more simply, what he wanted them to know so that they might rest in God. Paul will eventually, as we get further into the letter, give them moral instruction. But primarily here at the beginning, and he takes three chapters to do it, he wants to confirm their faith. Let me give you an analogy perhaps that will be helpful so that you can not only understand this text, but perhaps feel it. And let me say parenthetically, if I had magical powers to help you feel this text so that it would sink way down into your heart and change your affections and settle you today, I would do that. I would give you some sort of holy evangelical incantation to make that come to pass. But I can't do that. I cannot make you feel anything. I can't make you believe anything. But it is my hope, it is my prayer that that you will to some degree look at verses perhaps that you are quite familiar with, perhaps even that you, you know well and understand them in a new light, feel them and believe them, and through them that our Father would be glorified and that your faith would be confirmed. And so, the simple way to look at these verses that we will spend time in over the next several weeks is to understand them as Paul's revelation of God's great promises to God's chosen people. Or, to put it perhaps even more simply, you are to understand that you are truly loved by God. I think we grew up hearing that. I think we grew up singing that, those of us who did the whole Sunday school thing growing up. And, and when you're little, that's kind of a cute thought. But I think as you get older and the winds start blowing and the storms start coming and disappointments come, and sin accumulates, and guilt sometimes goes unchecked, and you realize just how hard life is and how broken we still remain, that that notion, that simple notion that God is love, and even more fundamentally that He loves you, can go by the wayside to the point that when somebody says it and you take time to meditate upon it, If you're being honest, you're not sure it's true. And I expect that some of you who are listening to my voice today, if you're being honest, aren't really sure, even though the Bible tells you so, that God loves you. In very simple terms, what Paul is going to do in the coming weeks, and very clearly today, is tell us just how much God loves us. And so the analogy that I promised you is difficult in our human relationships to really believe that anyone is truly for us. If you've been married for any measure of time and you have a good, healthy relationship with your spouse, you might really believe that. You might have the kind of relationship with your spouse that when your spouse tells you, that they really love you, that they're for you, that they'll never leave you or forsake you, 
you might, you might believe it then. A few of us, tragically probably far too few of us, might have one or two friends that we know that no matter what, they would never run away from us. We've had enough people disappoint us. We've had enough people run away from us. And we know our own selfishness and our lack of, of endurance and loving people around us that, that love, though a beautiful concept and a greatly desired concept, is far too often not felt and known. So I think our horizontal experience with, with failed love, with lack of love, affects directly the way we see our vertical relationship with God. And I think it's cyclical because the less we understand about God's love for us, the less we love each other as we should, and so round and round we go. To continue the analogy, because those of us in our horizontal relationships have a difficult time feeling loved, we have a hard time expressing it, and we have a hard time receiving it. And frankly, it is so uncommon to affirm another person in love that when it is done, it feels uncomfortable. I think this demonstrates not only that we have a great lack of articulation in the way that we express love toward one another, it's also tragically an understanding or a demonstration that we fail to really understand the way that God loves us. And so what I want over the next few weeks and today is for us to take time to meditate on this text. And as a result of having done so, the Holy Spirit will confirm in our hearts, not just our heads, that God does indeed love us. And He hasn't just said it. It's not just empty pipe dream promises. He has proven it. So, we are going to talk today about grace and glory, and we're going to see just how interconnected they are. This text is not primarily a call to action, though I will do some of that by way of implication. This text is primarily an affirmation of the love of the Almighty God for you and I want you to receive it as such. Let's read together Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. We'll go down to the beginning of verse 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. And we will end there today. One of the difficult things about Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, is that the sentences that we have in our English language are a little off from the way Paul probably originally intended them. If you have studied Ephesians before, you have a study Bible in front of you perhaps, or if you've been in a study with others before, you've heard Ephesians preach, perhaps you have heard before that Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14 are one, are, are one long 
run-on sentence. That's not exactly accurate if you study the language in its original form. There are ways of breaking down the thought units, and so that's what we're going to do. We're going to take our time to, to break down the thought units. And here already we see at the, in the uh, verse that we ended with, verse 6, that there's a comma. If you're looking at the ESV, it says, to the praise of His glorious grace, comma, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. The thought unit probably ends there with the word grace, so it would be similar to an English period. And so we're going to take verses 3 through the beginning of verse 6 as one significant thought unit. And here is the major thought unit that we see today. First, our Father is to be praised with thanksgiving. Really, our thought unit is bracketed by those ideas. Look with me. Verse 3, Paul says, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ.'" Then look in verse 6, all of these things that He has done for us, which we will take time to unpack today, are to redound or end in His glorious grace being praised, that God, because He is glorious and gracious, should be praised. That's how Paul begins this thought unit, and it's how he ends it. In simple terms, what Paul is doing in these opening verses to his letter to the Ephesian church is showing us how to think and showing us how to pray. That is, showing us how to understand the love of God and how we are to respond to that in the way that we relate to God. Even though we believe as evangelical Christians that salvation is by grace through faith, it is unmerited and unearned, we fall quickly into the trap of trying to appease God with our good works, to, to merit His favor. And thereby, we end up in the trap that I described earlier, believing in our heads doctrinally that God is a God of love, but not really believing it for us. And what Paul wants us to see in this text is that we are to be so overcome, overwhelmed, an understanding of the love of God for us that we can do nothing but respond in praise to Him. So this text gives to us an awareness of what God has done for us in Christ so that His glorious grace might be praised. So Paul opens up this section in verse 3 by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is like a prayer. Paul opens his words to the Ephesians by directing their attention to God. He is calling them collectively along with him, the writer, to recognize that God is worthy of praise, that God is worthy of great affection, of adoration because of what He's done for us. Foundationally, we are to to live lives of worship tangibly so because of what He's done for us in Christ. So think of it this way. Let me give you two words and show you the link between them. We are to exalt God, E-X-A-L-T. We are to exalt God because He has given us reason to exalt, E-X-U-L-T, in Him. We are to exalt God because we have 
been given reasons to exult in Him. Because there is one God and because He made all things, including us, we have the responsibility to praise Him. He deserves worship from His image bearers. And that's the only thing we knew, that He was powerful and mighty and made all things, He would be worthy of that worship. But you see, what God has done is revealed to us far more than His creative power. What God has done is He has shown us just how sinful we are. He has been honest with us, but He has done more than that. He has demonstrated to us that He delights in forgiveness, and He forgives not arbitrarily, not by dismissing sin, by taking care of it, not by excusing punishment, but by punishing His own Son instead of us. And thereby we understand what real love is, what real grace is. And thereby, because we can exult in such a God who is not only all-powerful, but who is all-loving, and knowing these things, we can exalt Him. This shows up in our prayers. Those of us who understand the importance of prayer and exercise ourselves toward it, and that ebbs and flows for almost all of us, we tend to get into routines with our prayers, especially if we've gotten into a bit of a rut and, and we feel somewhat distant from God. Our prayers turn into transactions. So, so God, please do this for me. And I know that I should be doing this, and I'll, I'll get around to that. But, but today, I need my paycheck to be this. I need my kids to get this diagnosis at the doctor. I, I need this thing to work out for me. We become very transactional in the way that we work with God. But Paul doesn't talk like that here. Paul's not being transactional at all. Paul is exalting God because Paul exalted in God. Most of us have had periods of life where we have fellowship with God to such a degree, including in prayer, that our prayers were rich, that we have known what it was like to talk to God in this way, but it is far too infrequent for so many of us. And I think one of the great traps for us as Christians is that we feel like we know everything, and because we know everything, then there's nothing else to learn, and there's nothing else to be embraced, and so we're going to go through this life sort of as a bored, disaffected group of people. remember as a child, there was a guy in our church who looked strikingly like Inspector Clouseau from the Pink Panther. If you're above the age of 30, you might know who that is. Um, he was a very interesting looking guy. He was um, kind of squirrely. <clears throat> when you looked at him, you knew something wasn't quite right and you always felt like he was examining you. He was the kind of guy that in the uh, proverbial 
fighting church meetings, you know, the ones that a lot of us grew up with where people fought during like after service church budget meetings and stuff. He was the one who always had some position to take that was contrary to the, the church at large, whether it was buying a new church van to haul the teens around or buying goldfish for the nursery or, or whatever. He always had something negative to say because he just liked to be heard. He had lots of problems. But he would never come and, and sit in for, for the preaching. He would always stand out in like the lobby area and hand out bulletins. And so one time he was approached by one of the pastors of the church and said to him, why don't you ever come in and, and listen to the sermons? And, and he said, because I know all of it already. I doubt that any of you would say that out loud. I wouldn't. But inside, do you ever feel like that? You ever feel like, well, I'm really struggling. My affection for God has really waned. Perhaps I'm depressed. Perhaps I'm super sad and low. God bores me. And intuitively, I know I should, I should spend time in God's Word and meditate on His promises, and, and I should listen to sermons, and I should, I, should, I should spend time with the brothers and sisters exploring the, the depths of the truths of God. But, I mean, I already know that stuff. How's that going to change how I feel? You, you ever get to that point? Well, it's not going to change how I feel. It's not going to change my circumstances. I already know all that stuff anyway. Jesus died on the cross. I'm going to heaven, and that's well and good, but, but life's pretty terrible right now. And no matter how much I know it, it's not going to change anything. I, I think that that is the forked tongue, the whisper, the hiss of the serpent that leads us to believe such things. Much like when you get married, you do not tell your spouse on the day of the nuptials that you love them and hope that that one single promise helps them hang on until you both go to glory. No, you tell the ones you love that you love them all the time. And you can't just get away with saying, I love you. You have to explain why in creative and thoughtful terms. The Bible is many things, but it, it is that. It is God's thoughtful, tender, gentle, consistent way of confirming His promises of love to His people again and again and again. I'm not saying to you that when you're depressed, sad, lonely, or troubled, that by reading a few verses, suddenly it's going to turn your day around and turn your frown upside down. I know that's not the case. But look at Paul. Paul wrote this letter from prison. If you read in 2 Corinthians, you understand that Paul had a really difficult life. He was shipwrecked, stoned left for dead, lost probably all of his worldly possessions, was imprisoned from time to time. Paul had a really difficult life. So how was it that he could break out in exaltation here at the beginning of this letter? When after all, he's in a very difficult position. Why? Paul could exalt because Paul exalted Paul was overwhelmed with what God had done for him in Christ. So this text, this, this thought today, the brackets of this thought unit is that our Father is to be praised with thanksgiving. 
So I call you before we go further, and though primarily this is not a call to action, there is an implication here. I want to call you to practice this, to deliberately praise God with thanksgiving. We're, we're approaching Thanksgiving season. I mean, let's face it, basically it's Christmas already, right? Once Halloween's over, it's Christmas time. But, but in between, like Halloween and Christmas, there's this little holiday which is called Thanksgiving. And around that time, perhaps we sit around the table with our family members that we don't like that much, and we say, hey, what are we thankful for this year? And you're really actually mad at the person sitting across the table from you, so you skip that person and you, you comment on what this other person's done for you. But it's a time to be, to be deliberately thankful. I think one of the very great difficulties that we have that leads to our depression and loneliness and sadness and boredom and a host of other problems that, that persist in our minds and hearts is that we are not deliberately thankful. It is very easy for us to, to tick off on a list all the things that we lack and forget what we actually have. For most of us, there's an encroaching fear and anxiety of all the things that could happen to us. And we fail to realize what God has already done for us and what will happen to us. So I call you to deliberate praise and thanksgiving. But upon what basis? And this is, this is what Paul's getting at. Upon what basis should we be praising and thanking God? Well, because He has lavishly blessed us in Christ. We should praise God with thanksgiving because He has lavishly blessed us in Christ. Notice that He says He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. When Paul mentions that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing, he's most likely referring to the Holy Spirit. We have been given the Holy Spirit. We have been given the Comforter. Jesus made a big deal of this in the Gospel of John right before He was arrested and crucified. He told the disciples to, to wait because the Comforter would come and He would remind them all the things that Jesus had said. And he would be their aid. As we will learn as we go on in the book of Ephesians, He seals us for the day of redemption. He illumines our minds. And more fundamentally, at the very beginning of our salvation, He's the one who gives us new birth, sovereignly by grace. So Christ has sent His Spirit that we might once again fellowship with God. We have been brought into the life of the Trinity. What I just said, I, I hope, did not fall on deaf ears and just skip along the surface of your imagination. We who fell in Adam, we who are fallen from grace, we who are separated from God by our sin, when we are given new birth, are brought back into the life of the Trinity. God the Father and the Son giving us the Spirit to dwell inside of us. We are the temple of the Spirit individually and collectively. And God communes with us by His Spirit. Paul goes on to say He has done this in the heavenly places. This might better be translated the high heavenly places. Not as though there are tiers to heaven, T-I-E-R-S, levels of heaven. But he's using hyperbole here to say there's a sense to which we have been raised already with Him. 
Look with me in chapter 2, verse 6. We have been raised up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is one of the most bizarre verses in all of the Bible. What does that mean? It would be easier for our ears and our imaginations if it read like this. And raised us up with Him and will one day seat us with Him in the heavenly places. That would make a lot more sense. But that is not what Paul says. And if we believe that the Bible is inspired even down to the individual words and verb tenses, that is a mind-blowing verse. And I think it provides insight to the end of verse 3 here in chapter 1. Here's the idea, I think. There is coming a day when we will have full fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. But that has been initiated in the here and now. If you have been born again, and the Comforter dwells within you, and that is true for all of those who have trusted Christ, then there is a sense to which you have already been reunited to God, and each day, even if it doesn't feel like, you are one step closer to full fellowship with God, something probably that Adam and Eve didn't even fully anticipate or enjoy before the fall. That is to say, there is coming a day when we will be fully reunited to God and we will have perfect joy. No more sorrow, no more pain, no more loneliness, no more fear, no more anxiety. But my beloved, that has already begun. You need not be racked by fear. You need not be overcome by loneliness. You you need not live with anxiety that your world will fall apart. You need not fear poverty or death or disease or famine or nakedness or peril or danger or sword or things you can see or things you cannot see because you've been united to Christ by the Spirit and you've been seated with Him. Oh, how I wish I could make you feel that. But all I can do is tell you that it is true. And I implore you to beg the Spirit to help it be more than just a doctrinal principle, but that you will be amazed by this. And so amazed and so intrigued that you will spend time meditating upon this in days to come. Our Father is to be praised with thanksgiving because He has lavishly blessed us in Christ in two primary ways that Paul reveals. First, He has chosen to restore us to Himself. Look at verse 4. How has God lavishly blessed us in Christ? Well, first of all, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world for the purpose of holiness and blamelessness. God chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. What happened in the garden? In the garden, Adam and Eve fell from sin, were no longer holy, We're no longer blameless. Holiness is the idea of of moral purity. Blamelessness is the idea of, of not having guilt for having broken the law of God. There was a time when Adam and Eve were morally pure and had no guilt. That didn't last long. And ever since, every human that has been born has been morally impure and guilty, legally and in understanding and feeling and relationship to God. But God didn't leave it that way. God full well anticipated what would happen to the human race. 
And what did he do? He chose us. This is a doctrine that over the history of the church, not just the history of the Protestant Reformation, but the history of the church at large, which has engendered and brought about much debate, this idea of election, that God chooses those who will be saved. There are a couple of exceptions to what I'm getting ready to say, but by and large, the, the principle holds true. By and large, when the doctrine of election is explained in clear detail or implied, and it is in many, many places in the Bible, both Old and New Testaments alike, that generally speaking, when this doctrine is upheld, it is expressed for one primary purpose. And that purpose is that God wants to give assurance to His people. There are a couple of texts which, which lead us to the conclusion that there are some deeper doctrinal implications to those who have not been chosen. We have to understand that too. In other words, there is a time for discussing this doctrine and its surrounding implications. But primarily, whenever this doctrine of election is put down on paper by the writers of the Scriptures, they wrote it down to encourage the saints. And so I am not going to get into a debate over election today. I'm going to explain it to you so that the original purpose of its writing will be understood and, again, hopefully felt. Paul is not bringing this up to start a debate. Had he done so, he might have put a parenthetical statement in here. So here's how this would have happened. Paul sent this letter to the elders of the Ephesian church, which he knew well. And he could have said, okay, after you read verse 4, have a sit-down debate time. He didn't do that. Paul wanted the church in Ephesus to hear this and to feel it and to be encouraged by it. That's the point of this promise, almost always when it's expressed in the Scriptures, to confirm the faith of the saints, to give them assurance and hope. And I think sometimes those of us who understand and embrace this doctrine have turned it into a billy club and turned it into something that is nothing more than just a debate topic. If that's how you feel about it and that's how you talk about it, you have missed the point. What God is doing in peeling back the the layers of His providence here. He's giving us an insight behind the curtain of His will, so to speak. He's allowing us to peek behind it so that we will be overwhelmed with assurance. That's the point of it. He has lavishly blessed us in Christ by choosing us in Him before the foundation of the world. This means, if we're thinking logically, this means that the only way that we could be brought back to God is that something dramatic happened because sin had to be dealt with. Punishment had to, be, had to be meted out. It had to be leveled out. And herein we find the love of God. How do you know that God loved you? Because He chose you in Christ, which meant that Christ had to come die for you if the choosing would come to effect and lead to your salvation. Think about that. We call this the covenant of redemption. Before the foundation of the world, the Father and Son made an agreement that lost, rebellious, willful sinners 
would be brought back sovereignly by God through the death, the substitutionary death of the Son of God. You do not get the impression as you think of this doctrine, this great promise of assurance that that the Son had to be coerced, that somehow the Father was was walking around one day, proverbially speaking, and, and came to the grip they came to the conclusion that they should do something new. Like God, the Father, Son, and Spirit always existed, and there was no beginning, and finally one day, like, God got really bored and, and had this intriguing idea to create some stuff. And so he came and talked to the Son about it, and he said, I think we should make this thing, and we'll call it a world, and we'll make some people who are kind of like us, and There'll be giraffes and elephants, and I'll tell you what those are going to be later, and and they'll eat grass, and there'll be oceans and all that kind of stuff. And and oh, by the way, some of them are going to rebel against us. So the only way to bring them back to us is if you go die. How's that sound? You go think about it for a while, you get back with me. Like, uh, that's not how this went. There There was perfect harmony in the way that God the Father, Son, and Spirit planned and and thereby brought about their plans. And there was also perfect harmony and unity in the way that they decided this whole thing would, would work itself out. The Son didn't have to be coerced into coming to be the Redeemer. He did it to display His glorious grace. And Paul was so overwhelmed with that thought that it led him to praise mixed with thanksgiving. And so I say to you, I know you know a lot of this, but do you take time to meditate on it? Do you you take time to to explore the promises of God for your sake? It's the most rational thing you can do. What Paul wants us to understand is that we have been chosen in Christ. The Son agreed that, that this is how redemption would take place so that God's grace might be felt. If humanity did not have the ability to sin, grace would have just been theoretical. If God had not followed through in bringing about His promises to the world, grace would never have been tasted. But He chose us sovereignly so that we would understand His grace and thereby bring Him the praise and thanksgiving, the glory that He is due. But notice, it's not just that we get this future salvation. We are to be holy and blameless here and now. Now, there's coming a day where we'll be fully holy and fully blameless. We'll be morally pure in fullness and have no guilt over our sin. But though that's imperfect in the here and now, it should be increasing This means that you were not rescued from sin just so you could have a mansion in the sky somewhere. You were rescued from sin to display and declare the great glory of God. To put it very simply, you have the responsibility and the great privilege of living for God now. That is the the purpose of salvation. The purpose of salvation is that you might represent the glorious king of the universe and the sovereign lover of your soul. That's why you've been rescued. And brothers and sisters, that's why the church is so important. So that we can mutually encourage one another to love and good need, love and good deeds. And we all have a role to play in that. God is to be praised because He's lavishly blessed us in Christ. He's 
proven this, first of all, by choosing to restore us to himself in Christ that we might be holy and blameless before him. And secondly, he has proven this by bringing us into his family. Notice in verse 5, really at the end of verse 4, Paul says, In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So again, I say to you, this doctrine of election, of predestination, is not to lead to debate and endless mental wrangling. It is to lead you to wonder. It is to lead you to assurance. Think about Think about what Paul's saying here. The power and love of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, the power and love of the Trinity has been leveraged on your behalf to ensure your salvation. It is not as though the gospel was preached and and if you have some, some moral goodness that resides in you, even to a small degree, that that some will choose it and others will choose to reject it. That's not the idea. Paul makes it very clear in Romans chapter 3 that none seek for God. If you look with me in chapter 2 here in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, notice what he says. And you, verse 1, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were following the prince of the power of the air. He was your master. Verse 3, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the, like the rest of mankind. Notice in verse 4, when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together. There's not some part of us that responds to grace if, if it's preached properly or explained in the most clear way possible. No. God sovereignly does all of the acting. And again, rather than leading to debate and speculation, this is to lead you to assurance and wonder. Notice that God didn't just save us. He didn't just pardon us. Verse 5 amplifies the thought. So verse 4, He saved you for the purpose of holiness. Verse 5 takes it a step further. He's given you a family, and it's His family. And you, you exist along his own son as one who will receive an inheritance. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. I think about that a lot, of course, because we recently adopted. So if you'll allow me to be personal for just a moment, I will. We had three and a half years to, to anticipate and plan for the coming of our two new sons. And even before that, we spent a lot of time talking and thinking about it. As my older son, younger one to some degree, but my older adopted son is gaining English skills, he's talking to us about his past more. He's talking to us about his family, his mother and his father, siblings, some perhaps that we didn't even know existed, some sketchy holes to his past that we don't fully know about. But as we understand his past, There were very few chances for him. In fact, it was getting to the point that his very life was in danger because of their socioeconomic status and because of ethnic hatred that exists against their small people group in their country. And it's quite possible that my young children would not have lived to adolescence had they been left in their setting in which they were. 
but God and His grace has brought them into our family. They're not better now because they're Americans. They're not better now because they wear better clothes. They're not better now because they'll get better education. But they have a father and they have a mother and they have brothers that love them. And they've been given full rights. I suspect one day when I die and my estate is divided out that there won't be uh, astounding riches to give to all four of them. But more than what's coming for them in an inheritance sense, they, they have a They have a family now. They belong. Just this week, we received their certificate of of citizenship. So when they hit U.S. soil and we went through customs, they legally became citizens, but we actually got their certificate uh, this past week. And that was a pretty neat moment. So we have certificates with their little pictures on them and their Ethiopian soccer jerseys that demonstrate that Tarku Lee Davis, that's legally his name still. We'll change it officially here in the United States soon. And Objoke Lee Davis, that they bear my name quite literally. And all the rights that flow to them as a member of my family and as a citizen of this country are now theirs to be enjoyed. Sometimes it's still odd to, to wake up in the morning or to spend time with them and realize that, that forever our family has changed. And we will treat them, and we treat them now as though they are just the same as our biological children. They have full rights. It's interesting, they did not seem to receive great affection in their culture. Um, We kiss in front of our kids, not to gross them out, maybe a little bit, but but to show our children that, that mommy and daddy are strong, and that we love each other, and that we're first for each other, as Abe and Zeke... Uh, watch that now that they they think it's kind of gross and weird but we kiss them and we hug them and and at first when we would hug them they would they would kind of come up to us like this and put their back against us they wouldn't like come to us face to face and and they would wipe off our kisses so we spend time talking now like we kiss in our family we hug in our family of course always appropriately but but we love each other that's what family does family showers each other with affection They don't know our rules. They don't know the expectations and the cultural norms of our family. So we have to tell them that. And they mess those up a lot. But when they have to be corrected or even punished, we are very deliberate at telling them, when you are good, mommy and daddy love you. When you are bad, mommy and daddy love you. When you tell the truth, mommy and daddy love you. When you lie, mommy and daddy still love you. When you obey and when you disobey, Mommy and Daddy still love you because you are our sons for forever. In the ancient Roman world, it was common for a man to have several sons and to give the lion's share of the inheritance to his older son, which would often leave the younger sons with, with not a lot of property rights. So sometimes what he would do is he would release him legally from his sonship and give him to another family, perhaps an uncle, and then he would become the heir of that family. And he would actually become part of that family in name and in function. So, though biologically he didn't belong to this new family, as far as his full rights went, he became part of that family. Paul probably takes that idea up and, and elevates it by helping these people understand that, that though in the ancient world there was this idea of adoption, it's something far better in Christ. That you've been taken from another family to which you once belonged, as we saw in chapter 2. You belong to the family of the devil. 
We were the sons of disobedience, he says in Ephesians 2.2, and we've been brought back into God's family. One scholar has, has likened this to, to Caesar, the emperor of Rome, subjugating another land, let's say in northern Europe, and taking some little slave child and bringing him into his family, and then standing him up in the middle of Rome and telling all the Roman citizens, this little barbarian is going to be the next Caesar of Rome. That would have been unheard of. And even that analogy pales in comparison to what God has done for us in Christ. We were not just a people to be subjugated. We were His willing enemies. And He has brought us into His family. The noun, which underlies the verb of predestination, carried with it the idea of setting out markers or boundaries of property. So when you, you bought a piece of property, you would take some stones or some stakes and, and mark it out as yours. The verbal idea follows from that. God marked us out as His own. We who deserved to be outside the family have been brought into the family by His sovereign grace so that we would hope in Him. He's done all of this according to the purpose of His will. Again, in verse 6, why? That His glorious grace might be praised. So here's the idea. As we exult in Him, we exalt Him. And so I say to you, my beloved, our Father is to be praised with thanksgiving because He has lavishly blessed us in Christ. And He has proven this very clearly by choosing to restore us to Himself and by bringing us into His family. As I've already said, I can't make you feel this, but it is true. So I call you to meditate upon these truths to ask the Spirit to make them your own. This might lead to great praise and thanksgiving and to an awareness that you are secure, that you are assured, that you are a son or daughter of God. You have full rights. He has loved you in this lavish, surprising, astounding way and that forevermore you are His and He is yours. Let's pray.